The scripture reading today is 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. Please stand. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth desired my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Tell no one so very proudly. Let no one not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the Almighty are broken, but their feeble bind on strength. Those who are full of love hired themselves out of bread for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have has been born seven, but she who has many children is forsaken. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and ri- makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He praises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them He will thunder. In heaven the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now, as we move into John chapter 11, let's be reminded a little bit about what we touched on right at the end of last week. Um, John 1, John is kind of broken up into two major sections. There's John 1 through 10, and then John 11 through 21. So John 1 through 10, we saw, is bookended very nice and neatly with the ministry of John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, we see John the Baptist's ministry and the baptism of Jesus. At the end of John chapter 10, we see John kind of bookend that off again with with going back to where he was baptized and bringing back up the ministry of John the Baptist and the long impact of that ministry. John 11 through 21 is very similar. It's bookended by a similar concept. And here in John chapter 11, as Didi has already already mentioned, um, there's the we bring up resurrection. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And what happens at the end of the book of John? Jesus raises from the dead. Amen. Right, so John is not a stupid book writer. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's got, a, he's got a, real, uh, a real reason for what he's doing here. Again, he, so John 1 through 10 is bookended by John the Baptist. John 11 through 21 is bookended by resurrection. So here today, we're going to be looking at resurrection. Remember, last week was the end of Jesus's public ministry. And now this, this particular miracle that we're going to see today is actually his last miracle. Um, the whole of John of chapter 11 is one whole narrative. So we're covering 57 verses because the text has to be covered that way. 
Um, it could be separated down, but here's why we're going to do this. Instead of breaking this apart, we're going to take a bird's eye view of the chapter. We don't want to miss the overarching point of the chapter, or as some people would say, we don't want to miss the forest for the leaves. Right? If you're walking through a forest, you might take a look at a leaf. Whereas if you get a bird's eye view and you see the whole forest, you see a different picture. Right? So we want to get the forest view, see the whole forest in this chapter as we walk through it. But if we remember back to our first week in John, we looked at a passage in John chapter 20 in verse 31, which tells us that the purpose John drives home through the whole book is, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole purpose of the book of John. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, it should not surprise us that the text continually drives us to that ultimate goal. We, the readers, are continually drawn to come face to face with the identity of Jesus. Everything he says and does drives us to conclude that he is the eternal, fully divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This whole chapter centers on one specific event uh, that Jesus raises someone from the dead. If Jesus raises someone from the dead, there is only one conclusion that can be come to. He is God. As we saw in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 6, Hannah confirms that the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol or to the place of death and raises up. Who is the one who has control over life and death? Who is the only one that can raise someone from the dead? God. So if Jesus raises someone from the dead, what does that mean? He must be God. He has to be. Only God has control over life and death. Only God can raise someone from the dead. If Jesus raises someone from the dead, he must be God. This is the last miracle that Jesus performs before his own resurrection. We know, we, we, we have seen how each miracle has pointed us to believing that Jesus is the Son of God. With each miracle, we've seen an increase in clarity. If you remember back to, back to the beginning of the book of John, his first miracle, turning water into wine. We show that that is, that is him declaring that he is the Messiah, that the time of the Messiah is at hand, that now there's a time of plenty. That's also showing his control over elements, Right? We see them turn water into something that is not water, right? We can do that kind of with Kool-Aid powder, but it's not the same thing, all right? Jesus does this with no Kool-Aid powder, and he makes a categorically different substance. He makes a grape-based drink from water. It's a little bit different than sugar water, like Kool-Aid, right? Not the same thing here. So um, Jesus is able to perform that miracle. And then, we, then he's, from there, what we see him, he, he does a long-distance healing of a, of, a, of a ruler's son. And we see him, he heals a man who was born, who, or who was lame, who had been lame, who had been able, unable to walk for a long time. And we saw him heal someone who had been born blind. No medicine could fix that. Right? He was born blind. And here we see this in this crescendo fashion that now he raises someone from death. We see this, this, this increasing in clarity. Uh, here Jesus' last miracle before his death is to raise someone from the dead. The only miracle that would be greater is that he himself will conquer death through his own resurrection. 
If Jesus is the son of God, as this chapter confirms, then we only have one choice, to believe him and to trust him as savior and make him Lord of our lives. That's it. If he is God, that's the only option we have. The only other option besides that would be to reject him as savior and say, no, I don't want that. The only right response to this truth is to believe in him and to trust him as savior and make him Lord of our lives. If it is true that he is God, then as he will say in John 14, that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through him. Trusting Jesus, however, goes beyond the initial moment of salvation. Trusting Jesus takes place every single day throughout our lives. As we look at this passage, we're going to see five ways that the passage guides us to continually trust in Jesus. So we have this overarching narrative, right? Jesus raises someone from the dead. Because of that, we must believe in him. And in believing in him, there, this passage will show us Five different ways. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. There are much more than five ways, but we're going to see five ways in which we are called to trust Jesus and what that means. Um, so let's go ahead and what we'll do is we'll, we'll walk through the passage section by section, little by little, until we get to the end. So uh, we'll start off here in verse one and, and we'll, we'll pull out these truths as they, as, as they come up and we'll, we'll walk through this together. Um, let's pray as we, before we get started. Lord, thank you for this opportunity again to come before your word. Lord, I pray that you would take me out of the way. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide us and lead us. Lord, help us to understand what your word is teaching. Help us to, help us to um, Lord, even in places where it might disagree with maybe our preconceived notions about this passage, Lord, may you correct our minds. May you correct my mind. Uh, as this passage has changed me, as there's other things that I have found in my own study of this passage that have, that have changed my perception of this passage. Lord, help us to submit to your word. Help us to, um, to grow in you today. In your name, amen. Starting in verse one, let's, let's read this section, then we'll walk back through it. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard of it, he said, this illness is not, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going, to, are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. The, the, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. 
So Thomas called the, twi- called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This first section we see that trusting Jesus means trusting his timing. Trusting Jesus means trusting his timing. If we look back through this passage, we look back at verse 2, for, for instance. We, 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 what do we see in this passage? We have two, we have, we have some... Um, we have some messengers who have come to Jesus and said, hey, Lazarus is ill, Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He waits. We're going to see why. Let's, as we walk back through this passage, let's see why. Uh, we see that Lazarus is ill, verse 2. It says this Mary, this person is being talked about, is, um, is Mary and Martha are Lazarus' sisters. And he says this Mary is the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, we're actually going to find out about this next week because it's in chapter 12, right? So what is John doing? Why is John explaining something that happens in, in chapter 12? Why is he explaining it and saying, hey, you remember that person who, who wiped Jesus' hair with, her, with ointment, you know, or wiped Jesus' feet with her hair and with, with ointment? Yeah, that's Mary, right? Remember, John is writing well after these events have taken place. So this is probably something that's already in the memory of these believers. So in, in, in a way, he presupposes that the readers already know who she is. And he's just connecting the dots. He's like, this is the same Mary that did that. Let's, let's make sure we have these all, th- all these things together. From another standpoint, it's actually good literature. Have you ever read a good book? If a good, a good book is going to end up introducing a character early, and then that character ends up coming back later. If you get really good literature, what I love seeing an author do is when they bring up a character that seems like they're totally a side character and have nothing to do with anything, and then later on they become like the main person. And you're like, where did that person come from? Oh, wait, that's right. They were that nobody at the beginning of the book, right? So John is just, just like a good author. He's introducing characters before he brings them up in his narrative. But at the same time, there's already a presupposition that his readers already know who that person is. Look at verse 3 then. Um, so, so, so the sisters sent to him, they sent out messengers, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now this particular Lord, this way the word Lord is being used in this particular instance, is probably more like the word sir. Uh, not necessarily a declaration that he is Lord God, but that he is Sir. Now, that's it is true. We'll see later that they do believe that he is the Lord, the God of the God of this world. But in this particular use of it, they mean more more along the lines of Sir, Sir, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, "The illness does not lead to death." Now, again, does this illness lead to death? Yes. Does Jesus have no idea what's going on? Is Jesus ignorant? No. What is he saying? He's saying this will not lead to his ultimate death. It's not over for Lazarus. As a matter of fact, if we were to place together this timetable here, right? Uh, When Jesus arrives on the scene and he actually, we'll see later when he actually goes to raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Okay? Okay. Now, the way the timetable would work out is most likely Lazarus was still ill when the messengers were sent. It was probably about a one-day journey to get to where Jesus was. Jesus waited two days and then took that one-day journey. When did Lazarus probably die? Probably shortly after the, the messengers were sent. Probably wasn't long after the messengers were sent that Lazarus actually died. 
So here, Lazarus is already dead, and Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. Clearly, Jesus has intentions and knows exactly what's going on and knows exactly what he's going to do. Verses 5 and 6, we see... Uh, this Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. No, John, John, this is commentary from John. John wants us to be very clear that Jesus' response is not one of disregard for these people, right? He's not unconcerned with what's going on there. John wants us to realize, you know, what Jesus, Jesus had just said that this illness did not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And instead of thinking, oh, Jesus is just doing this for selfish reasons, right? John reminds us he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These were his friends. He cared deeply for them. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What may seem to us like a contradiction Jesus cares about them. Why didn't he leave? Right? John wants us to realize and remember he does care. He does care about them. For another reason, why might he, leave, not, why might, why might he not leave right away? We've seen this throughout Jesus' miracles, right? As Jesus has performed miracle after miracle, people have come to him and said, Jesus, do this. And what has he said? No. And then he does it anyway. Right? We've seen this time and again. Jesus will not be manipulated. Jesus will not be coerced into miracles that he that are not in his timing. Right? He is waiting at this point, what we'll see in the text, he is waiting for God's timing. He is waiting for the Father to send him. It's not time yet. Uh, this, this is also significant. Um, it's also a significant time for the resurrection to not be considered resuscitation. Right? If he waits for four days. As we'll see, we'll see here, the, the Jews believe that the, the spirit may hang around for a couple of days. And so if Jesus waits for four days, there's no question he is dead. Jesus is not resuscitating him. This is not emergency, emergency medical services that Jesus takes place here. This is, this is uh, resurrection clearly. Okay, so Jesus is, uh, his, his delay is not out of, out of being rude or being mean. It is, it is so he can clearly demonstrate that he does raise him from the dead and also to show that he is waiting for God's timing, waiting for his father's timing, uh, not being manipulated. Continuing on then, then after, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. We saw that last week in chapter 10. And you were going there again, Jesus said, answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is interesting because what's, what he's pointing out here is that is, uh, in, the, in, the, in the work day in that world, it would have been during the time when there's daylight, right? People would have been working during those twelve hours. Okay? Um, so what Jesus is actually getting at, the spiritual meaning that he's getting at, not only is he saying that, hey, they're probably working, they're not going to be trying to kill me right now, or whatever the case may be, right? He's also pointing out that there is still work to be done, that he still has work to do. There's still work that the Father has for him to do. And while the light is in the world, remember, Jesus is the light of the world. While Jesus is the light that is in the world, there is still work to be done. There will be a time when there is darkness. There will be a time when he has died, when he is raised from the dead, and when he has gone back to heaven, and he will no longer be there. And then the, that part of the work will be finished, and the disciples will no longer have that light. 
Right? They will be in darkness, so to speak, in, in this time of, of, of waiting before Christ's second return. So this is what Jesus is getting at here uh, in the way he, way he describes this, uh, his reasons for going to, the, to, the, uh, to his disciples. Um, he, he still has work that needs to be done. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And then again, as we've seen before, the disciples don't get it. Say, well, if he's sleeping, isn't he going to get better? Right? And Jesus is like, he's dead, guys. <laughs> he's dead. I'm going to go raise him from the dead. I'm glad that he's dead because then you get to see me do what I'm called to do. You get to see me do something that's going to bring glory to God. Right? Now, again, it sounds odd, but this is, this is the way Jesus brings it up. And then you have Thomas, remember? Doubting Thomas, same guy, right? Thomas, who just called the twin, or Didymus. Um, this is Thomas. He, he, this is the guy who later would be doubting whether or not Jesus raised from the dead, wanted to see the nail prints. Uh, we call him Doubting Thomas, but that kind of gives him bad rap. I mean, he wants proof, just like we would want proof. At some level. But look at this. Look at Thomas here. Uh, before any of the other disciples have made any kind of mention of this, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. If they're going to stone Jesus, let's be right by his side. There's courage right there. Right? The one that we give such a bad rap and call him Doubting Thomas, here he is showing the courage that we wish we had. That we'll go with him. Right, so Thomas actually shows this, this interesting thing here. So trusting Jesus means trusting his timing. Jesus, once again, we see this, that, that, that God wants to work this miracle. God is going to work this miracle, but the timing isn't right. Too often we don't trust God's timing. Something terrible is going on in our lives, and we say, well, why can't you do something now? When are you going to do something? Just wait for his timing, whatever that might be. Second, we see here that trusting Jesus means keeping the resurrection central. We need to move quickly here. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went and met him, and Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Here we see Martha uh, as the first person to meet with Jesus. Even though she had lost her brother, she has not lost her confidence in Jesus. Right? She says, Jesus, I know that if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Now, again, she's not blaming him. She's not saying, well, why didn't you get here earlier? Right? She knows that the messenger she sent on the way, on their way to Jesus, they, that he died. She, but she does know that, man, if he would have been here, and it would have been, it would have been, he never would have been able to die. Jesus could have healed him from his illness. But she still has this block in her vision. She can't, in her mind, there still is no category for Jesus raising someone from the dead. So Jesus tells her, he's going to raise again. 
She says, oh, I know he will in the last day, in the resurrection. I know that you'll do that. You'll raise him from the dead at that point. And Jesus makes sure he, he emphasizes to her. He says, look, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus confirms to her that not only is, is, is this going to happen in the last day, but Jesus could do this right now if he wanted to. There will be no resurrection. There's no resurrection, no eternal life outside of Jesus. Amen. He is in complete control of resurrection. Yes. That is it. And in verse 27, we see, we see here, she, uh, she, she holds that one who is the resurrection in life must be, be such by virtue of the fact that, that he is God's promised Messiah. Look at when Jesus says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this is true? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that I can do this? And she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Her belief in the resurrection, her belief that Jesus has power over resurrection whether or not she at this point believes that he, Jesus can actually raise Lazarus from the dead, she knows and she understands that this power Jesus has over resurrection means that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. We see here that trusting Jesus means keeping the resurrection central. If you trust the gospel, if you believe that you are a Christian, if you claim Christianity and you explain the gospel and you leave out resurrection, you have misidentified the gospel. You have misrepresented the gospel. I've, I've talked to many pastors who've asked friends, who have asked people to, to uh, explain the gospel, explain what the gospel is. And any of them will, will explain the gospel and they'll say, well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. And, and, and you know, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. That's what the gospel is. And they say the one thing that is always, almost always missing is resurrection. People will talk about Jesus coming and being a perfect sacrifice and dying for their sins so that they might have life, but never mentioning the resurrection. If we explain the gospel and we leave out the resurrection, we miss the gospel. The resurrection is so central to the gospel. Amen. Continuing on in verse 28, it says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, he, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the, in the, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. She's getting up and going, hey, she must be going to go and weep. Now, again, this, is, uh, this goes back to a cultural thing. It was expected at a funeral that even the poorest people would have someone to play an instrument and, some, and hire some professional mourners, something that we don't do today, right? Um, but in this day and age, that's what, one of the things that they would do. They would hire professional mourners. So imagine having that for a profession, right? Can you go to funerals and cry for people, right? That's your job. That'd be crazy, right? That'd be, uh, I'm sure that would be a very emotional job to have, right? I couldn't do it. I don't, my tear ducts don't work that well. So, uh, so imagine having that for your job. This is a profession that, that existed at the time. 
Then we see that Mary responds very similarly to the way Martha did. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, very similar to Martha. She's not saying that Jesus should have been there and she's casting blame on him. She's saying that she trusts that Jesus could have healed him. But yet she still does not understand that Jesus still could raise him from the dead. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is one of the most interesting things I, I, I found out as I studied this passage. Um, I was challenged in my thinking strongly in this way, in, 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 in the way I needed to understand this passage. So I'm going to share this with you, and, and hopefully you can, you, can, uh, you can kind of understand this and come along with me as, as, I've, as I've had to reorient my thinking on this passage as well in this particular section. So the word for deeply moved, you see that in verse 33. Jesus saw her, her weeping and the, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This word for deeply moved, the, the original word, uh, carries the idea of anger. It actually literally means, uh, was, was usually meant to talk about the snorting of an animal, right? And, and when it's talked about humans, it usually carries the idea of anger, in fact, in everywhere, other, every other place in the New Testament, uh, except for where it's again used here in John 11, this word carries along the meaning of anger. And here it's been translated as deeply moved. Um, uh, or or in, in other translations will do that in something similar to that. Some commentators then, because of this aspect of it, that this deeply moved is more this idea of anger. Now again, hold with me. I see you got weird looks like... Where's he going with this? Right, bear with me here. Um, the, some commentators have actually chosen to translate this as he was outraged in spirit and troubled or something like that. If the best way to under this, understand this word is to understand it as anger, then the question you're asking is probably the same question I asked. What's Jesus angry about? What's he angry about? And then how does that impact our understanding of this passage? Again, there's no shortage of a variety of interpretations among Bible teachers on this question, so I will do my best. It seems best, first of all, to agree that outrage is the better way to translate this word. All the evidence points to that that's, that's the better translation. Second, we must understand that this outrage is not demonstrating a lack of compassion. We should not come to this and say, well, we tend to separate anger and love as those things are totally separate things. We should not do that in this passage, and we'll see why. I'll explain that in a second. And third, we must look at the context to understand what the object of his anger might be. We can see two areas where Jesus might be outraged. First, sin and its effects. And second, the lack of faith of the people around him. The sin that is present in the world has brought the illness and death of his friend, pain and grief to Mary, Martha, and the rest of the mourners. The, this open demonstration of the effects of sin makes Jesus angry. It outrages him to see how destructive sin is. With these, uh, um, with these effects of sin, Jesus could also be angry with the lack of faith of those around him. Their mourners indicate, the, their mourners indicate that they believe that Lazarus' death is final until the last day. This is beyond the power of Jesus' healing. Jesus. 
It is possible that these factors will bring him to tears in verse 35. When it says Jesus wept, that this may have been what was bringing Jesus to tears. And again, it would seem, some commentators would suggest that it seems contradictory to see that if Jesus knows he's going to raise someone from the dead, why would he be weeping about that? Why would he be weeping just at losing his friend? Okay, now again, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm, I've, been, I've been working through this this week and trying to make sure, trying to understand exactly what's going on here. So then let's ask this question. Does this anger compromise the love of Jesus? Absolutely not. Just briefly, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 3 says that outside of Christ, we are by nature children of God's wrath. That before you become a Christian, you are the very object of God's wrath. More than just sin itself. It's not just angry. The wrath of God is not just directed at the sin in your life. God's wrath is directed and pointed at you and at me outside of Jesus. Because in our sin, we selfishly worship ourselves and and participate in that sin. And that is what incites God's wrath against us. Yet the very next verse tells us in verse four, it says, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There in Ephesians, we see this is not a contradiction for the Lord. For there to be wrath for sin and wrath towards sinners. Yet at the same time, love and compassion that gives a way of salvation. Here Jesus could be, is very likely demonstrated the same thing. Jesus' outrage and weeping over the effects of sin and the disbelief around him are because he loves them. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all may come to repentance. And then we see that there's a divided, again, there's a divided response to Jesus. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? While the other group said, aw, he loved his friend. Right? This is a division. Those are radically different approaches. But yet we do the same thing. We, trusting Jesus means trusting his compassion, even amidst doubt. When trials come, when suffering comes, we tend to think God has left us. God doesn't care about us anymore. He could have fixed this and he didn't. Let us never forget that God is a compassionate God. He loves us and cares for us. Even when we may doubt that, his compassion is still there. Fourth truth we find in here is that Jesus, uh, trusting Jesus means believing his power over death proves his divinity. Look at this next section here. Then Jesus deeply moved again. That's the same word from verse 33. Came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. This is how we know Martha does not believe that Jesus can actually raise Lazarus from the dead right now. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. If you have the King James Version, you'll see it says, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) He stinks. He's been dead for four days. I have not had the privilege of being around a dead body that's been dead that long. If you have been, I must imagine that I should feel sorry for you, right? 
I'm sure it stinks. It reeks, right? He says there's an odor. It stinks. Verse 40 then, the Lord said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed in me, you would see the glory of God? Jesus challenges her doubt. He says, I told you, if you believed in me, you'll see the glory of God. And look what he does here. So they took away the stone. Obviously, Martha and Mary gave permission. They took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, they may believe that you sent me. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! This man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. Unbind him and let him go. The purpose of this miracle is that the people would believe that he was sent by the Father. We also see a contrast. Remember, John 11 through John 21 is this other section. Book ended by resurrection. What happens in Jesus' resurrection? What happens to the grave clothes? They're folded up and set to the side. And Jesus is released from them, right? The grave clothes still remain in the tomb. Here, Lazarus doesn't have that, right? Lazarus' resurrection is a different resurrection. It's not the same resurrection that Jesus has, right? Lazarus is still bound in his grave clothes. Now, the, the idea might be that maybe he was too tight or whatever. How would he be able to move around? Very likely the way that they bound him, he probably would have looked something like this. It's going to look really silly. He probably was... Something like this coming out, trying to, to, uh, to, to, you know, imagine being bound up, your face is covered, you're in a cave, and you're trying to get out of a dark cave. I'm sure, you think you probably bumped into a wall? I don't know, right? But again, like, this had to be so silly to see, but at the same time, what a miracle that took place. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Trusting Jesus means believing that his power over death proves his divinity. There is no doubt anymore. As one uh, late night comedian, I'm gonna lo- you're going to love this, a late night comedian actually talked about the resurrection. Um, he was talking with a guy who is an agnostic who does not believe that Jesus is God, or he's unsure of whether or not Jesus is God. He's a New Testament scholar. Uh, a guy named Bart Ehrman is this, this particular scholar that this late night show guy was talking to, uh, Stephen Colbert, if you know who he is. Uh, and he asked him, he says, because I'm going to prove to you that Jesus is God for just a second here. You guys don't know, Stephen Colbert has a Catholic background. Um, he says, the son of a duck is a duck, right? The guy goes, yeah. It's like, so if he walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, and raises the dead like a duck, he's a duck. <laughs> right? How do we know that Jesus is the son of God? He raised someone from the dead, something that only God can do. What a miracle that takes place. Trusting Jesus means believing that his power over death proves his divinity. If you were going to trust Jesus, you cannot deny that he is God. You can't. And finally here, real quickly, we'll see that trusting Jesus means handing over our authority. Look at how people respond. to This is a big miracle, right? We're cheering in here because this miracle is so awesome. Look what happens here. Many of the Jews, therefore, who would come with Mary and see what he did believed in him. Good. But some of them went to the Pharisees. 
so the religious leaders, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him, if we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, let me stop right there. Basically, what they're worried about is that this guy, Jesus, is going to start up this big riots in the street, messianic fervor. People are going to be going crazy about this. And the Romans are going to say, you can't keep control of your people over there. I'm done. We're done with it. And we're going to we're going to come down hard on you. Right now, again, it'd be one thing if they were if they were afraid and they were concerned that the people would now be back under slavery of Rome, something that they fought hard to to retain this uh, this freedom that they have um, in the nation of Rome. And here they instead what they are seeing, what they're afraid of, though, instead of being afraid for the people and being concerned about the people, they say they're going to take away our authority. They're afraid they're going to lose their power. Now look what happens here then, verse 49. Or, yeah, 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So in his mind, he says, he says the best thing for us to do is to kill the, this one guy, and then everybody else will be fine. Everybody else will be saved. Okay? Now get this. Watch how this is, this is beautiful. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So remember, what Caiaphas actually thinks he is saying is, we can end this, we can not have to worry about Rome at all, we just kill this guy off. But God, through Caiaphas, is prophesying what's actually going to happen, right? Through the death of Jesus, salvation will be brought to the nations. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that, the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, uh, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country before Jerus- to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. This usually took place about a week before Passover. We'll see that's actually exactly right. In, first, in chapter 12, it says it was six days before Passover. Anyway, verse uh, 56, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew who he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. We've seen this, uh, this, uh, this attack on Jesus progressively grow stronger and stronger. And here we now have an organized effort to take Jesus out. Now, lucky for us, that doesn't happen until about chapter 18 or so. Right? So we've got a ways to go. Chapter 19, I think it is. So we've got a ways to go. But, uh, uh, but it, it's also interesting. It, it's interesting that we, we already see this. This is coming out to the very end of Jesus' life. We're about a week away from, about a week or two away from his death, and here we are. Um, so what we see here is the trusting. Tr- what we learn out of this passage 
Uh, one, I love, I love the prophecy that comes in out here, that God is even able to use someone's wicked motives to declare truth about, about Christ. That's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing there. What about trusting Jesus? What does that mean? Uh, we see here that uh, the way, these, the, way the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the way they were describing this, they said that if, if, if Jesus, we don't do something about this, Jesus is going to take away our authority. Trusting Jesus means handing over our authority. It's just true. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if we believe that he is Lord, we are handing our lives over. We are saying we no longer have authority over our lives. It's not up to me anymore. It's yours. And yet we still rebel against that. We still try to hold on to that authority. But if we're really trusting Jesus, we're saying, you take it. You take control. So we've now we've gotten a bird's eye view of this passage. We've seen, we've seen how uh, the, the, this Jesus who raises people from the dead, how he is indeed the son of God, and there is no denying that. We've seen that there are several things that, that means that we must trust about Jesus. We just trust his timing. We must trust, but the, the trusting him means keeping the resurrection central to the gospel. We've seen that trusting him means to trust that he is compassionate, to trust that he loves us, even when we're not sure, even when we doubt that. We've seen that we must trust the Lord. Uh, we must trust that he is divine because of his power over death. And we also must, uh, we also see that we must, that trusting Jesus means that we're going to have to give up our authority in our lives and trust him completely and, and give up uh, those areas, let go of those areas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to, to see your word, to look at this, um, Lord, uh, Lord, and to... Um, <coughs> to be challenged by, by these different ways that we can trust you. Lord, we thank you that you are the Son of God, that you are divine, that you are holy, that you are righteous. Lord, that you do provide salvation through your own death and resurrection, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Uh, God, I pray that you would uh, be with us during this time of invitation. In your name, amen.